sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent the son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with these tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give them fruits in their seasons. Sorry. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests heard the Pharisees, heard his parables, they perceived that it was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. I think I'm on. There we go. Yeah. Well, grab your Bibles this morning. Uh, that parable is an intro for us. We're going to be Acts chapter 13. We'll go 42 through the end this morning. And um, the title of this morning's sermon is Plan A, Rejected Grace. Plan A, implying that things uh, are not always what we think they are, that grace is somehow a response to the fact that man was sinful. And what I'm going to assert this morning is that grace was always planned, and therefore there is no response of God that would cause it us to think that he was un unexpected about the state of the world or our need for grace. And so I'm going to just really quickly jog you where what happened last week and then launch right into it this morning. Uh, Paul has been preaching in the synagogue in Antioch, not Antioch where they started from. This is a different Antioch. And he's essentially done this. The, the message has been this. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies, of the prophets, of the uh, salvation history of the people of Israel, of the people of God. He is the substance of all the promises, and he is the covenant-keeping uh, solution to all of their needs. And so Paul's essentially delivered this message by way of the Old Testament, reasoning from the Old Testament to these Jews, that Jesus is the substance of all that they'd hoped for. And so all of this, though, has come through a theme that Paul's sort of interwoven in his references in the Scripture, is that every time there's somebody that's been arisen or that there's been a prophecy made or a promise made, the people have rejected that promise or they've rejected that person. And so this theme of God's plans and God's leaders and God's uh, promises being rejected by the people is not something that deters that plan, but it's the thing that actually brings that plan about. So rejection is built in to not just God's plan, but it's also built into the means by which um, Jesus is actually confirmed as 
the Savior that Paul is asserting that he is, right? If, if uh, Isaiah said that the, the servant of the Lord would be one who suffered, who would be reviled, who would be beaten, who would be scorned, he, uh, by his wounds were healed, all of that is putting the idea of rejection on to the identity of the Savior. And because Jesus endured those things, it affirms his identity. So you see that rejection is built into the reasoning here. And so the thesis for the morning is this. Rejection brings grace. But it's also the reason why we need grace. Because we reject God's plans. We reject God's ways. We reject God's promises. And so we necessitate grace, and God provides grace. But we also... Are, we, we get, as Gentiles, we get to experience grace because of the rejection of God's people along the way, which spreads grace out further. So grace is not a response by God to man, but it was plan A. It was always meant to go to the fullness of all of the world. And so what was the mystery in the front half of salvation history in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant was how God would accomplish this through one seed and get that to the whole world. And so this is actually being enacted in our text this morning that there's this real um, movement, it's spreading out, it's not a change per se, but it's a widening of the scope of the gospel being primarily one that was hitting the Jewish people, and now it's expanding the scope to the Gentiles as well, which was plan A. So it's not just that God provides grace, he provides grace, he provides the means of that grace in Christ, but he also applies that grace. And that's an important idea that I'm going to put that the seedbed there now so that when we get to it this morning, you don't go, where did that come from? So God doesn't just hope for that grace that he's provided lavishly for us that some of us will hopefully take him up on that offer. That would be a provided grace, but not an applied grace, right? As in Jesus' sacrifice, not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And the question is then, who is that get applied to? Who gets to the benefits of that grace? Well, all those that take him up on those promises. So there must be an applied grace, but it's not a mystery on God's part who that's going to be, okay? So that's baked into the cake if grace is plan A. If grace is plan A, and I'm asserting that it is, then inherent in that is that God must know that we're going to need grace. He had already planned a means of providing that grace. That's why Jesus is called the lamb that was slain from what? The foundation of the world. It wasn't, oh no, I created the world and these people mucked it up and now I, I need a response to that. It was already a plan thing that Jesus would be the means of that grace. And so by implication, mercy, justice, righteousness, goodness, all the things that we associate with God's grace are baked into the cake of sin and rejection, and rebellion, okay? And so Jesus being the lamb slain for the foundation of the world, we're also told is the purpose of that is that he will bring, not that he might bring or that he hopes to bring, but that he will bring many sons to glory. He will bring a people to himself. It's a guaranteed return. And so there's the application then of the provision. So Jesus asserted that I am the way, I'm the truth, I'm the light. We get that, we know that. But the verse just after that is, he says this, If you had known me, you would know my Father. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. So Jesus is the perfect revelation of who the Father always was. And he says, if you, if you know me, then you know who the Father is. And so that's all of what Paul asserted last week through his message. If you just want it summed up in a tidy little thing, Jesus is the picture of the Father in human form. He's the embodiment of the promises. He is all that was waited for. So 
Grace is plan A. Grace was planned. It is needed. It is provided. And it is uh, applied. So let me pray. And then we will get to the text this morning. So Father, we ask that in our time and your word that you would um, use your, your words to implant truth in our hearts. Father, uh, I think we're, we're, we're covering some difficult terrain this morning in terms of our, our ability to understand and grasp things that um, are beyond our ways. And so I just ask for your grace in my words, but also in our, our minds to understand what you're saying and that um, these truths would be implanted in us as spiritual truths to bear spiritual fruit and for our maturity and good of your people. So um, give us your spirit to help us strive with us in this time and uh, keep me from air. And we ask for you to provide what we can't, which is the spiritual equipment to do this. So Father, give us eyes, ears, and hearts that are tuned to you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So... I think we all know what a parable parable is because you're even like a rudimentary familiar, even if people that aren't familiar with Scripture, haven't read Scripture, have undoubtedly heard references to various parables. Everybody's sort of got common knowledge of the idea of the parable of the Good Samaritan. They get uh, the structure of what a parable does. But in our minds, we get a little bit confused because the way that we walk through Scripture is generally to distill down a story that's told or, or history that's recorded. And then we say, well, what, what do we do in light of this, this thing that's been told to us? Or sometimes there's a direct command. Hey, do this, don't do that. Or this is written down as a warning to you. So prepare accordingly, right? So that, that kind of thing. And I had a little bit of an epiphany this week. And I'm sure I knew this, but I didn't really think this clearly about it. And so a parable is, is not like other things like myths or legends, where there's a, a story that's not a... It's not a, a literal history of something. It's a story that illustrates a truth. But it's not, it's not given for the purpose of you to have an application. So let, let, me, let me qualify that. When Jesus tells a parable, he doesn't say, so therefore, if you're in this situation, do X and not Y. He never, he never gives an application like that. He always says, if you understand the meaning of this parable, you should you should, that's, that's the purpose. The understanding is in, is in the point. So a parable is simply this, a story that illustrates a truth, period. What is a parable? It's a story that illustrates a truth, okay? And parables describe, they explain, and they reveal the way that things really are. So w- when Jesus wants to tell the people what the kingdom is really like, or what God is really like, or how salvation happens, or something like that. He tells them the truth. He illustrates it in the form of a story, but it's, it's veiled if you don't understand it, which is always why he says, if you have eyes to see, or if you have ears to hear. And so he, he's, the, the disciples, frustrated with this method of communication, go like, Jesus, why are you teaching in parables? And he said, so it would be true that though they hear, they're not hearing, and though they see, they don't see. Okay, why is, why is he doing this? Because he is telling the truth about the way that things really are, but they're unable to always be perceived for what they are. In the parable that Dave read at the beginning of the message this morning, the parable of these wicked tenants that beat the servants of the true owner of the vineyard, right? At the end of that, 
it says the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they, they have the inkling that this parable was for them, right? It's pointed at them. And so they, they do discern the truth behind this, but that's not a common occurrence. That's the exception. Generally, they don't understand. In fact, Jesus is uh, normally the one that has to give, here's the explanation of this parable. Now, why do I go through this big thing about parables? Because this morning, I'm going to use several parables for us to overlay them over the text to understand what it is that Paul is saying to these people and seeing it play out in real time. So that when Jesus said, this is what the kingdom is like, and then we go, what is it like? Well, he tells a story about what it's like, and then we see that play out in real time in the world. And what is grace like? Well, it's like this, and he explains it in a parable. So we're going to use parables this morning to understand what's happening in the text. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off at the end of that parable that he tells about the wicked tenants. Because at the end of it, it says God is going to, well, in, in the story, the, the owner of the vineyard is going to take away that vineyard and give it to those who will produce its fruits. So what's, what's, this, what's the picture there? Well, there's a people who have been given a, a, a stewardship over a vineyard to produce fruits, and they've not done it. In fact, they've mistreated all of the representatives of that owner. In fact, he goes, then he sends his son, and guess what? They mistreat him. What is that a picture of? Well, that's the picture of all the prophets coming and them hating, the, the Jewish people hating those prophets and stoning them and beating them and killing them, John being one of them. And then Jesus arrives. Surely they'll respect my son. Nope. Okay? So then the consequence of that is that God says, well, I'm going to take that away from you, and I'm going to give it to a people who will produce its fruits. So we see that happening in the text this morning. And as the scribes and the priests recognized this, Jesus had quoted this scripture that I ended last week with, and that's what, like, turned the light bulb on for them, which is, what, do you, what does it mean, then, that the cornerstone uh, that the builders rejected has become this... this the, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And they realize that the rejected things that they have pushed away has become uh, the, the, the means of salvation. And so they see that Jesus' story is about them beating servants and Jesus himself being the son. Okay? So, but they're afraid of um, offending, offending the crowds at that moment because... They don't want to be on the wrong side of the crowds, which also comes up this morning. So here we are, Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 42, and we'll just take a couple verses and pick it apart as we go. It says, as they went out, this is following his sermon, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas, uh, mostly Paul at this point, right? they're carrying uh, what appears to be a desired message. It says they begged for these things to be told to them the next Sabbath. Nobody's ever begged for me to preach, not before or after I preach. I was hoping like maybe before I preach, and they were like, hey, I didn't even get the benefit of the, the, the doubt, but... They're begging for them to come back. Tell these things to us. Again, there's an initial response that's like positive. The measurement, though, is not in the initial response. Success is not in the initial response. There are a range of reactions that come about by way of this word of salvation, this word of grace being declared. And we have our own reactions to the, the word of truth, and so does the world at large. There's genuine intrigue about if, is this thing true? I want to hear more about it. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm interested. You have my ear. 
There's also like, I really like what you're saying, but they don't quite grasp the fullness of it. There's a superficial kind of implanting where we see them like really be zealous and, and go after it, but they don't fully embrace um, the truth about what, what it all means. There's genuine conversion at just the, the initial response is, uh, I'm fully in, I, I totally understand what all this means, and I've been waiting to hear a message like this, and it all makes sense now. But there's also outright rejection. There's, I, I don't like anything that you have to say. You can go pound sand. And there's also outright misunderstanding on both sides. I, I misunderstood. I think it means something that it doesn't, and I like it. Or I misunderstood uh, w- what it is that you said, and I don't like it. And so there's a range of responses. The gospel can be welcomed, but not implanted. The gospel can be implanted, but not have good roots. It can be rejected, and it can be implanted and bear fruit. So this brings us to the parable of the soils. In the parable of the soils, Jesus tells about a sower that goes out and he sows seed on different kinds of ground. And this seems to be a really straightforward parable that everybody understands how different seed falling on different kinds of ground might bear different kinds of fruit. But when he told it, they didn't quite understand it. And so after explaining why he's teaching in parables, he says, now hear then the interpretation. What is the, what is the meaning of this parable? So from Jesus' own mouth, this is what that parable means. Starting in verse 19 of Matthew chapter 13, he says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So there was uh, some seed that had fallen on the path, and these birds come, and they they eat up the seed. He says, that's what's sown along the path. And then, uh, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. That's that's one good initial response. They, They receive it with joy. They like what they hear, but it's not all told yet. Yet, he has no root in himself. And he endures for a little while, but when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So you can have a great initial response, but there's no root in it. It didn't really go down deep. I I misunderstood the fullness of what happened. I liked it, but it it didn't really get down into my soul. And so as soon as there's opposition, I, I fall away. And as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, But the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word out, and it proves unfruitful. Again, this is like an initially positive response. The problem is that the things of the world crowd in, and they overwhelm the initial uh, throw everything away and hope in Christ alone. That that, uh, proves unfruitful. And then in verse 23, as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word, understands it, and indeed bears fruit. And it yields in one case, and this is the amazing part of the parable, hundredfold, and another 60, and another 30. Those are unheard of yields from singular seeds in the agricultural realm. And so not just, it's not just some seeds are kind of fruitful, it's that the fruitful seeds are amazingly fruitful. And so Jesus is telling a parable about the way that the gospel is received. And so when, when he's telling it, it's a story that illustrates a truth. He doesn't say, if you find yourself to be rocky soil, you should sort that out. Therefore, you'll become fruitful soil. He's just explaining the way that things will be heard in the kingdom so that when it happens, you go, that's why that occurred, okay? So we see initially three-quarters of the reception is positive. They, they like what they have to hear initially, but that excitement and eagerness uh, dissipates away depending on the circumstances, and only those that truly have the Word of God rooted in them will produce fruitfulness. And so what we see in Paul declaring this 
gospel truth to them, the grace of Jesus, that he, he is the Savior. There's an initial eagerness, but he doesn't get ahead of himself. Right? The response to this is, they, it says that Paul and Barnabas encourage them in the grace of God. He sees not just the fact that they are open to this word being implanted in them. He sees that as God's grace, but then the fact that they needed to continue at all would not be done by their efforts or by his efforts, but by God's grace. And so they encourage them to continue on in grace. Grace isn't just what brings us in, it's what brings us home, right? We sing it in Amazing Grace. Grace will lead me home. It's, it's the means by continuing on. Paul later has to write to these same churches in this region, the, the book of Galatians, where they've missed this. They've, they've forgotten this point. He rebukes them because he said, did you, did you start by your own efforts or did you start by grace? And hold, holding fast to that word. And he says, now you are moving to this thing where you think you are perfected by works or by your own efforts. And so they miss that. It's not just grace as the initial step, but grace is the whole path forward. It's grace as plan A for you to get from, from here to the final destination. So these people are pleading, come back. Paul and Barnabas are, are trying to encourage the growth of whatever will bear fruit. And then in verse 44, it says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of God. Also has not happened to me. Um, it says, but the, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Paul here gets a taste of his own medicine. That word there is blaspheming. And that's what he used to do. And so there's some principles in this. That there's, there, we see a crowd gathering. There, there's, there's sort of a buzz in the town about this new word that's been spoken. And supposedly the Messiah has arrived. And so the, these Jews and devout converts have gathered a group of people. But now it's a mixed bag. It was in the synagogue would have just been Jews and proselytes. But here we have now a, a fuller spectrum of people who are going to hear the word of God. And this causes a reaction of those who only want a crowd. Crowd lovers are jealous of crowd makers. Crowd lovers are jealous of crowd makers, which brings up the question, what, what is the mission of the church versus what we see happening here in this story? And I, I think we get bound up in this debate about what should this gathering look like? Why do we do this? And it's a question of here versus here. Here versus here. Is, is our purpose to get the biggest group that we can here and call that the church. That's one option. Or is it to get the biggest group that we can so that they might hear the word of God? And I would say that those are two, two distinct purposes, but they are not one and the same for this purpose of what's called the church. Are we just here to gather a bigger pile of people? Is that what the church service should be? And I would say it's not. It's the difference between evangelism versus a worship service for God. What Paul is doing here is the initial step. We see, hey, this is great. Like, he's got a big crowd of people, an opportunity to preach to a bunch of people. But he doesn't do that every week. Once people have been saved, he implants a church, and they meet on their own. It's not always trying to preach to giant crowds of people. So what is our, our problem? Is it that we don't get enough people here to hear the word of God? Well, no, I think we've mistaken the venue for which we're supposed to be preaching in. So we shouldn't be only focused on getting more and more people here. We should be more focused on getting people H-E-R-E -E, by hearing in other locations, okay? In Mark chapter 12, verse 38, Jesus has this warning about the mentality of just wanting to be seen, to performing, uh, to using religious 
um, actions for your own means. It says, beware of the scribes. They like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplace. And they have the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. And they devour widows' houses, and for a pretense, they make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. Jesus rebuked the kind of mentality that only wants notoriety and fame for, being, uh, uh, for, for serving in religion. Religious devotion that was not true devotion to God, but rather an elaborate routine to make a display so that they might be seen. And in return, the, the scribes, the, the Pharisees, Jesus said, beware of that. In return, they hated Jesus because of his popularity, because he did draw crowds. And their hate is rooted not in the fact that Jesus taught a different doctrine, though they hated that. They hated the fact that he was popular. That's what they desired. That was truly what was in their hearts. And so when he gathered crowds, they were jealous of the fact that he was getting the kind of fame that they went um, to great degrees to try and get for themselves. And so they avoided, though, contradicting his teachings, like we see in that parable, and which initially sounds like a good thing, a, a beneficial thing. But there's a point at which favor within the, the greater populace, because it's such a fickle thing, becomes a dangerous thing, right? You can see that the, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, afraid of the crowds, they don't come against what Jesus has to say. And so we, we think, well, that's, that's good for Jesus, that they're not, you know, publicly contradicting. But the problem is that Jesus isn't beholden to the, the popularity of the crowds. In fact, whenever he gathers a big crowd, he teaches something, and it says a lot of people left, right? They go away. They say, well, who can, who can hear this kind of teaching? Because Jesus didn't um, sacrifice the truth for popularity, which is the, 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 the deadly mistake of a lot of ministry. Jealousy for recognition or popularity is a ministry destroyer. And I think it's a key mark of, of false teachers. I think what, if, if you just kind of observe the landscape of the Western church at large, I mostly see pastors and churches that see Jesus as a means to make their church bigger. They see the gospel as a means to gain fame instead of the gospel as a means to, to give Jesus fame. And I, I feel like, you might, you might think that's like especially hard, hard or harsh, but I think you, you can see this because the, the marketing uh, of the gospel is changed based on what's popular for the crowd. And so it's indicative one will follow the other. Jesus never seeks out the crowd to hear the word. Crowds sought him out and he spoke the word faithfully. We're called to faithfulness. Popularity is fleeting, and if you're measuring success by how many people are gathering here, then we've, we will ultimately be beholden to the popular truth and not the truth, right? If we're, if we're hoping for and our success measurement is how many people are here and like what I have to say, then we're going to be beholden to the, the popular opinion of what truth is, which is rapidly de deteriorating, right? And so we, we can't be beholden to the opinions of other people. In Luke 6, 26, he says this, Jesus, woe to you when all People speak well of you, for so they did to the, your fathers. Uh, so they did to the fathers. Their fathers did to the false prophets. He says, if if people have a good opinion of you, it's likely because you're not telling the full truth. That's that's a that's not a. This might happen. That's a. Here's probably what's going on when when people are speaking well of you, which is hopefully an encouragement in in my own life. But it's hard to not be liked. 
And it's hard to, to feel like you have a message that most people don't want to hear. And the truth is this, that unadulterated grace is a hated message for people that want to earn. Grace, as the message of the gospel, is hated by those who, who feel that they have merited salvation, which is why everybody that was so ingrained in the religious system hated what Jesus was bringing and what the church was declaring. But grace is a welcome message for those who know they have no chance. So how do you know when we're, we're teaching the truth? Well, when those two metrics bear out in the way that we present the gospel. It's the people that want to earn and think they're worthy of God's grace that will hate that message. But the people that know they don't, have a, don't stand a chance and desperately need grace, they will flock to that kind of message. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus told a parable about workers in a vineyard. And I'll condense it down so we don't have to read the whole thing. And essentially this, um, there's a, a man who had a vineyard and he hired workers to come work for him. But he did it at various points in the day. One very early in the morning, one halfway through the morning, one after lunch, and then one when there was only just one hour left in the day. And then when he's going to pay those workers for their work, he lines them up. And as he begins to pay them out, he is paying them all the same amount, which the people that showed up early in the morning began to begrudge that grace that's given. And so Matthew chapter 20, here's sort of the essence or the, the real meat of this parable. It says, now when those who were hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. That was how much was paid to the people that came at the very end of the day. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and yet you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he, that he there is the, the master, the owner, he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did, it not, did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I chose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So Jesus didn't say, if you find yourself working in a, in a, in a vineyard and you've only worked for an hour, be grateful that you get paid as much. Like, you see that this is a description of the truth about the dispensing of grace to people. And what's, what's really the heart of this parable is Jesus preparing the, the people, uh, the Jews themselves, for having stewarded the promises so long. And that when the promises go to the Gentiles and they're sort of last in the pool, but they get the same wage, they get the same grace, whatever the the master has bestowed on them, that there will be jealousy in their hearts. So now that is what we see happening, that the, 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 the word of um, God, the de declaration of salvation is going to other people, and there's jealousy in the hearts of the Jews, not just about the people that are coming, but about them receiving salvation and a reward that is like unto their own. Well, what about us? We, we follow the law. We've had the promise. We have Abraham as our father. They have all these reasons why they deserve more than these scrubs who come in at the end of the day. So Jesus is describing how that's going to happen in this parable. Moving on, it says, And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. In John 12, 46, Jesus said, I have come into the world as light. So that whoever believes in me would not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. 
For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And then he says, For the one who rejects me does not receive, and does not receive my words has a judge. It is the word that I have spoken that will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who has sent me has himself given me a commandment and, uh, of what to say. And know this, that his commandment is eternal life. So Jesus says here essentially this, that it's, it's not the fact that I'm going to have to stand up and say, I, I condemn you. It's the fact that I've already given you the truth and you've rejected that message. You've rejected that message and you've condemned yourself. This is essentially being repeated in so many words now by Paul. You, you have rejected this message. You're reviling the message. And behold, you are, are condemning yourself and you've judged yourself unworthy of eternal life. Why? Because rejecting the message of God is to reject the message of salvation. So to reject that message is to reject both salvation and God himself. And what Jesus confirms then in verse 50 of that is that that word, that commandment that is given is eternal life. So to reject that word is then to reject eternal life. In uh, Matthew chapter 22, there's a parable that Jesus tells about a wedding feast and about a, a man who's, who's going to throw a, a, a feast for his son who's being married, and it says they, they send out invitations, and they're given a bunch of excuses. Well, one guy has to go check a field, and the other guy's got to go see a man about a horse or whatever it is, right? Like, he's got all these excuses about why they can't go to the, uh, to the celebration. And um, the, Jesus says that they'll be judged for their wickedness in, in, um, in refusing that invitation. In uh, verse 8, he says this, and he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. He, he, didn't, he didn't say beforehand they weren't worthy. They were genuinely invited. They genuinely had a, a, a given the invitation, but they refused that invitation and have now called themselves unworthy by rejecting that. So rejecting is what happens. And then the result of their rejection is that he says, guess what? We're going to invite anybody that... We can get to come. Invite everybody you know. Invite everybody you don't know. Go out on the highways and the byways and invite everybody and tell them they're welcome. And that's exactly what they do. And we're told because of that, that they bring in all kinds of people, both good and bad. So we have here a picture of the gospel going out, the invitation that Jesus is the Messiah. It's rejected. And they've judged themselves unworthy of stewarding that commandment of eternal life. And because of that, now the the the, the the gospel gets to spread further out, and that's what Paul declares. Behold, you've rejected this message, judge yourselves unworthy, and so now we're going to turn to the Gentiles. Verse, um, the, the, the meat of that particular parable, go therefore to the main roads, invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out to the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. So the kingdom now is compared to this kind of feast. It's going to be open to anybody, and everybody is welcome. The invitation's been extended, and so we'll get both kinds. There'll be people that are actually qualified that are worthy and people that aren't worthy, but they'll still be invited, and they'll try to come. So grace comes through rejection. Grace came because of rejection. They rejected the invitation, and now the, the, the invitation gets to be a, a wider scope. And Paul says that this was the foreseen outcome. Because what he quotes here is, behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. We, we are supposed to be a light to the Gentiles. And so it was a foreseen outcome that not only Jesus um, would, would be the sacrifice for the Jewish people, but for the whole world. 
And so um, let's go to uh, verse uh, 47 here. It says, For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So that, that is a quote way back in Isaiah, that salvation would go to the whole world, but it only comes by way of the rejection on the front end. So I've, I've made you a light to the Gentiles, that you would bring salvation to them, but they only bring salvation to them by rejecting that salvation. It says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So, essentially is this. He says, you have rejected the message. Paul says, behold, we're going to turn to the Gentiles now. And when the Gentiles hear this, they go, hooray, this is, this is meant for us now. We, we get to partake in this. And it says that as many were appointed to eternal life believe. So, there's a there's a long way and a short way. I'm going to go the short way this morning, okay? Here's the short way. The construction of this grammar is rock hard. You can't get around it. It is what it is. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed, not the other way around. Not as many as believed were appointed to eternal life. So you have what preceded the belief was being appointed. That is... That's, that's the, you can't squirm around that, that issue. Now, why do I call that an issue? Because that makes people uncomfortable. And that's why I said at the beginning that it wasn't just that God knew that we need grace. And it wasn't God just providing grace. He also applied grace to a people. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So how, how do we understand this? And, and this is where we might get some help from a couple other parables that may, may seem out of left field. Jesus tells a series of uh, three parables, and they're all about lost things, right? He tells about a woman who has lost a coin, and it says she turns, uh, she lights a lamp, she sweeps the house, and she finds the coin, and when she finds the coin, she rejoices. Hooray! And then he tells about a man who lost a sheep, and he says he leaves the 99, he goes to, to seek out the one sheep that's gone. And these lost things have something in common, and it's that they're lost, yes, but they don't find themselves, okay? A lost thing has never found itself, ever. So you have uh, essentially this. The, the, the worker in salvation is God coming to seek you out. But before uh, I, I lock that in and frustrate you, get the picture of the first parable with the invitation being genuine and the rejection of that invitation being the cause for you're, you're counting yourself unworthy for eternal life. So the invitation is genuine, but so too is God's choosing to appoint you to eternal life. So you have to hold those in tension, and I can't resolve that tension for you. What you have to do is err on the side of truth, which is God's truth, which is what is asserted in Scripture, and both are asserted. And the more you try to make, make doctrine or theology a slave of logic, the the the, the further away you will be from the truth. Because once you, once you put it through the, the filter of man's logic, you will elevate man's status, his power, his ability, and you will call God unjust. And the truth of the matter is that God is infinitely just, infinitely powerful, and infinitely worthy, and we are not. So we have to say, we may not understand how that tension works itself out, but it's there. 
So both are true, that God must first appoint us to eternal life that we would believe, but that we are genuinely responsible and condemn ourselves if we refuse that invitation. Romans chapter 9 says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath that were prepared for destruction? Not that happened to be going to destruction, but they were prepared for that purpose in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for his glory. Even if he has called some not from the Jews but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea. Now listen carefully. Those who are not my people, I will call my people. Those who are not Jews, I will call my people. Why? Because it will provoke them to jealousy. It will show that... um, Salvation was always in God's hand, and they will also enter in on the same term. Let me finish this sentence. Those who are not my people, I will call my people, and her who is not beloved will be called beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called the sons of the living God. Okay, I sped that up. They will be called the sons of the living God. So here's what, what, what uh, Paul is saying in Romans, that God has prepared different vessels for different purposes, and he's going to call people that were not originally called his people his own. He's going, to, he's going to call them to himself, and that being the Gentiles. And then he later says in Romans 11, the reason why he's done this was so that the Jews will see the Gentiles coming to salvation and enter in as well. They will be provoked, be provoked to jealousy because they've seen the, the blessings that were meant for them, that they always carried. I'll round this out here. At the end, in verse 49, we find out that the, the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And this is that the Jews incited devout women of high standing and the leading men of the, uh, of the city. So what we have in verse 49 is the payoff of the parable of the soils, where the word's implanted, a church grows, and the word is spreading throughout the whole region. And because of this, there's some encroachment against that. The Jews don't like this, and so they invite, or excuse me, they incite devout women uh, of high standing and leading men of the city, of the city to come, and they stir up a persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and they drive them away. But that doesn't that doesn't negate the church that's there. It's still there. It's still producing fruit. And their response to this is they say, "But they shook off the dust from their feet, and they went to Iconium, and the disciples were filled with joy and uh, with the Holy Spirit." And so here's the conclusion of all of these is essentially this. Rejection was expected. It's what brought grace. But rejection also is what spreads the grace. Rejection in this city means we're going to move on to the next city. It says they shake this, the dust off their sandals, which is a way of saying we're, we have declared uh, the, the truth faithfully. You've rejected it. And so the consequences beyond your own hands. We're not even carrying your dust from your town with us as we go continue on our journey. And some receive this truth and some don't. And the invitation to the kingdom was to bring both bad and good in. And the nature of grace is that what we most need, we cannot purchase. What we most desire, what we, what we most <laughs> should, should strive after is something that we can't attain by our, our, our mere wanting it or hoping to get it by uh, working for it or by offering a sum for it. And so... This brings me to the third parable of that lost series. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and then we have the lost son. 
is the prodigal son. And uh, this story has been used to illustrate all kinds of truths. But if just go back for a minute and ask the question, what truth was Jesus illustrating when he told this story? What, what is he trying to make apparent to the people? We have two sons who have a father, and one son, as we know, takes his inheritance early, he goes, and he spends it lavishly and while living in a faraway country. And in the meantime, the father's waiting, and it says at some point the son that had gone into a foreign land says he's, he's impoverished, he's destitute, and he comes to his senses, we're told. That's an important moment. He comes to his, his senses, and he decides to return home to the father. And he just wants to go and be a hired hand, right? If it, it, I, I'm living in, in the worst kind of uh, way here, and at least if I go back and work for my father, I will have a better life than this. It says he comes to his senses, and that's his, his sort of moment of return. And when he comes back, it says the father was, uh, essentially, we, we, he was anticipating him because he sees him far off, right? So we get the sense that the father's been waiting, anticipating his return. He runs out to him. He welcomes him back in as a full son, and this pans the camera to the second son who's upset about this, right? And he says, I was always here. You never even, there's a big celebration. He won't enter in. The father comes out and also pleads with the second son to come in and says, look, and, and his, the second son's frustration is with the father for not just welcoming the son back, but in, in celebrating his return. He says, but you were always with me, but the son who is dead is now alive. And so there's a lot of moving pieces here. But I would essentially say that this is a parable about grace. It's a parable about the truth of grace. So we have a son who goes and he, he takes not what the father is, but what the father can give or what the father can provide through blessing. It's, it's what is rightfully his by being a son to the father. But he takes that early and he goes and he, and he wastes it away. And when he comes to this moment and he decides to do something important, it doesn't say he decides to try and get his place back as a son. He, does, he doesn't go, he, he has this speech prepared, but only so that he can just be a hired hand. He's not looking to get his sonship back, but it's when he decides to trust only in the Father's grace and whatever that would provide for him, that's the moment that we see him return. And he comes back and receives more than he ever expected. Pretty good deal. Now we have a, a son who's always been there. He's actually after the same thing that the younger son took. He doesn't really want what the father is. He wants what the father has, which is why he begrudges that the second son has this celebration. You never even gave to me a, a calf so that I could celebrate with my friends. What does he really want? He wants the same thing. He only wants... The, the, the goods, the inheritance. He too is not after the father for himself. He wants the benefits of it. And he makes the profound mistake of proximity for relationship. I was always here. I've always served you. Therefore, I have merited. We have a son who knows he has not merited anything. And you have a son who thinks he has merited what was given by grace in either case. Is, is Are you a son because you've merited it? No. Do you get grace because you've earned it? No. Do you not get grace because you rebelled? 
because you went and did something foolish, because you've been far off from God. Absolutely not. In fact, that's what makes grace necessary. It's a parable about grace and how we profoundly miss the point when it's applied and offered to us. So I want to end this morning in Romans chapter 4. got to find it here sir Romans chapter 4 saying this this is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring I'll, I'll explain that and then I'll pray this is why it depends on faith what does your relationship must depend on faith so that the promise rests on grace. If, if the moment where the son comes to his senses and decides to throw himself on the mercy of his father, that is a picture of, of faith. That's grace. He's, he submitted himself in faith to whatever the father would give him. That's a picture of faith. It has to rest on that so that the promise of grace is guaranteed. If he said, okay, son, you can come back only if you do this, this, and this. Well, now there's a provision. There's, a, there's a, some steps that you can do that would earn grace, which makes it a promise that can be lost. But if the promise can come and be guaranteed, if it's a guaranteed promise, it has to rest on something better than your ability to get it or not get it. It has to be based on the guarantee of God himself. And the only way that you get it is by realizing you cannot get it. It's finally when giving up what you don't have to acquire what you cannot have. <laughs> it's giving up a billion dollars in debt, giving that up to be lavishly rich. That's the kind of giving up that faith is. It's to give up and entrust what you don't have to the Father and trust that grace is the means of being brought home. Let's pray.